Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Radio Imbibe from Imbibe Magazine. I'm Paul Clark, the executive editor of Imbibe. It's January 2021, and I hope your new year is off to a good start. On our previous episode, I talked a little bit about our annual list of the Imbibe 75. As I mentioned then, in a typical year, the Imbibe 75 introduces you to bartenders and baristas and winemakers you should know, and new breweries or drinking destinations that should be on your radar for the coming year. But these are interesting times. So for 2021's Imbibe 75, we're instead introducing you to people, businesses, and organizations that are working to make the drinks world and our communities more inclusive, equitable, and sustainable, and above all, working to make our world a better place. In our last episode, I introduced you to two people to watch from this year's Imbibe 75, Jackie Summers and Lynn House. Give that episode a listen if you haven't already. And for this episode, I'd like to introduce you to Dr. Hobie Wedler, another of our Imbibe 75 people to watch for 2021. An organic chemist and entrepreneur and a native of California's Sonoma County, Hobie Wedler has always felt a particular affinity for the wine industry, and wine's sensory aspects appeal to him greatly. Hobie is also blind since birth, and the sensory aspects of food and drink have given him many avenues to explore, starting with the events called Tasting in the Dark, which he co-innovated with Francis Ford Coppola's winery starting almost 10 years ago. Here's my conversation with Dr. Hobie Wedler, exploring the many avenues his interests have taken him as a wine lover and a scientist and entrepreneur. I chatted with him virtually while he was sitting outside his home in Petaluma. You may hear a bit of traffic noise, but instead of considering it a distraction, think of it as part of the full experience of sitting in on a conversation with one of this year's Imbibe 75 people to watch. Really appreciate you taking the time to, to do this for us. And for those folks out there who are encountering you for the first time, allow me to int introduce you to them. You have a PhD in organic chemistry from the University of California, Davis. You're the founder and director of the nonprofit organization Accessible Science. You're an entrepreneur and the co-founder of SensePoint Design, now SensePoint, a design company with a focus on relating stories and experiences using all five senses. And you're a food and beverage expert, and you've led a series of blind wine tastings at the Francis Ford Coppola Winery in California. And you're also blind since birth, and you're an advocate not only for those in similar situations, but for all of us to have a greater awareness to the role that our senses can play in our everyday lives. Did I hit the main points there? I think so. Thank you very much for that intro. And uh, Paul, it's really a pleasure to uh, to be with you and to be able to to be able to chat with the uh, the Imbibe audience. It's really an honor, and I just thank you very much for the opportunity. You know, it's it's so great to talk to you because you really kind of cover the spectrum through the food and beverage universe. And I guess one thing I was wondering is, as you were pursuing your education and starting your career in the sciences, what drew you in the direction of making food and drink a focus of your attention? You know, my parents have always uh, cooked all of their own food. My parents worked very hard. They taught my brother and I how to how to work very hard and just um, just really have that that good, solid, positive work ethic. And um, I remember when I was very young, uh, my parents would make soups and then freeze them and, and take them to work, you know, as, as, as their lunches. And I at a pretty young age, I got really when I was about 10 years old, I got really excited about about cooking and about mixing flavors and something that I thought was just sort of a fun hobby and passion, I think was really the beginning of me training my palate to really have a deep understanding of flavor and aroma and texture and how they all pair with each other and sort of learning that language. And, 
and actually later that year, my, my father would actually hire me uh, to make large pots of soup. I had, I had several that I, that I would do well. And I was, it was sort of a, a, a job that I had that I really took to heart and, and took very seriously. Now, the other side of the coin, how I got into beverage and, and wine specifically, well, I grew up in Sonoma County in a town called Petaluma, just north of San Francisco. And when people hear of Sonoma County, we often think of, of wine country and, uh, and wine tasting and this sort of thing. Now, I've always had a love for things that are hyper-local happening around me, how the water gets from the city water supply to my house, how the trash gets collected every week. You know, when I was a young child at, you know, receiving mail at the, at the, in the mailbox every day, you know, I really appreciate these, these hyper-local things that make the community run around me. And one of these hyper-local things that I always sort of had a, an underlying sort of smoldering fascination for, even, even when I was fairly young, is the wine industry and understanding that, that grapes are basically grown in my backyard, not really, but, but nearby, and then turned into wine and sold as a premium product all over the world. Just always fascinated me. And I've always had a, had a sort of appreciation for things that are produced around me, you know, where, I, where I'm from. Um, and I, my, uh, my partner's uh, family is, is very into wine. And I, I, I started smelling different wines and experiencing them, um, you know, in, at the end of high school and that sort of thing, just before going out to UC Davis to attend college. And I actually took a few winemaking, cor- wine appreciation courses and winemaking courses at UC Davis, University of California, Davis, which is really a, a great one of the arguably one of the world's uh, best wine schools. And um you know, it just, I, I loved it. I loved how it was, we brought it all back to the roots right where I was, you know, right where I'm from and uh, had some really great conversations and, and learned a lot and really started training my palate on, on a wide variety of wines and uh, gaining a deep understanding of flavor and, and flavor insight and flavor perspective. And, and like I say, really training my palate to understand and, and think through flavor and be able to it really developed. That was when I really started developing a repository of aromas in my mind. So when I smell a wine and it reminds me of guava, I immediately think of, you know, what type of guava? Is it a pineapple guava? Is it a strawberry guava? Is it maybe almost like a guava, but not quite? So aromas to me in my mind literally are vocabulary words. And I compartmentalize aromas just like I, I compartmentalize definitions of words in my mind or as a blind person, routes that I might need to travel uh, when I when I walk around and orient myself as an independent blind traveler. It's the same. I think of it as the same sort of way. So that's how I got into into beverage and into wine, particularly. And in 2011, through a friend of a friend, I was my resume uh, made it to the desk of Francis Ford Coppola, and his team reached out and asked me to co-innovate a uh, a truly blind folded wine experience. So an actual tasting in the dark, we call it, and uh, really innovate that with him for his, uh, as a hospitality experience, you know, for, for guests that, that attend his wineries. Um, and he really let me take the reins of that experience, which was, which was great and, and really exciting for me. And we built something that was popular with the hospitality uh, sector, but quickly took off in, um, you know, in trade as well. So I, I you know, while I started grad, while I was starting graduate school, I was a computational chemist. So I was able to carry my my laptop as my laboratory, is what I like to say, and I was able to travel around the country with uh, with their trade team, 
And then I expanded way out into other other foods and beverages and spirits and you know beer and olive oils and vinegars, coffees, teas, you know, you name it. So really having a good time uh, with the whole the whole experience and uh, really using the blindfold as a good way to give people another lens into an understanding of food and beverage. Sensory literacy, sensory design, and sensory awareness are key subjects that you explore in your work. How do you approach these subjects in the context of looking at wine or coffee or spirits and the ways that we enjoy them and appreciate them? You know, I, I am a true believer in, you know, helping people become more sensory literate and more aware of their surroundings using sensory literacy as a vehicle for that. And I, I think I should go back and explain what that means, uh, sensory literacy means. And I've, I've actually um, brought a lot of these, these bl- this blind tasting work and, um, you know, a lot of the coaching that I do around and mentoring around being more aware of our surroundings and, and just helping people through some of the, some of the sludge that, that sometimes we find ourselves dealing with this brain sludge. I really like to think through how can we how can we use sort of my experience of the world and the challenges that I've faced to help people sort of through that? And I'm doing a lot of that under my own personal consultancy, uh, Hobie Wedler Consulting, and, uh, you know, really sort of building out my own personal brand there, both inside food and drink and, and, and outside that, that arena as well. Sensory literacy, I just want to define that before I talk about how I apply that to the food and beverage industry. To me, Sensory literacy is the ability that we all might have to take information in from all five senses and, you know, your sense of sight, your sense of hearing, your sense of smell, your sense of taste and your sense of touch and process that information uh, really critically and, and come up with, you know, make logical deductions based on that information that we think about and that we that, that we take in. Right. I think a lot of times we use our eyesight for so much of what we do. I think we're all very visually literate. If, if you see a red fence and uh, you, you've seen enough things that basically walls that divide two areas of land that you would you would know that that's called a fence. But you also know this this color red. Right. You, you just you, Paul, as someone who is sighted, have you know, you learn when you were a child, okay, I, I see this. And, and people told you that that was red I and mean, maybe many different shades of red, but you know what that color looks like. It's, it's a vocabulary word in your mind, but I don't know how literate we all are. For instance, in our sense of smell, how, how often have you been going about your daily life when you catch a particular smell on the air and you say, oh man, I, I know what that is, but I, I can't quite place it. It's not as obvious as that red fence where you you definitively look at that fence and you know, yes, indeed, this is red. And really what I try to do is I try to give people an insight into what can our other senses tell us? And oftentimes I feel like when people aren't distracted by their by their eyesight, and I, I say eyesight very carefully because I think all of us have vision. Some of us just might lack eyesight. When we take away that eyesight, and, and provide people with key aromas to smell. So I often prime people's palates with, with very specific aroma samples before they might taste something, whether it be a wine or a spirit or a beer or whatever the case may be. And, and then we go ahead and we taste those beverages. I find that people notice things in, in the beverage that they maybe, or food that they maybe would not notice if, uh, if we didn't sort of train them and talk to them about sensory literacy and how 
there really are no wrong answers. You know, people just need to explore. And it's true. You know, vision is eyesight, excuse me, is very definitive. We know what something looks like when it's red. And truthfully, olfactory is too. But because we're not, we don't often focus as much on it, it might be a little bit harder. And something that I smell that I might call one thing might be perceived by you as, as something uh, quite different. One of the things that I may add to that that I think is is also really important is that every one of our senses, but I think smell possibly more than than sight, just because we we use it a little bit less, um, is very cultural. You know, I, I served a, a good friend of mine who has uh, Guamanian parents a glass of Chardonnay, which I would have described as being buttery, a little bit oaky, you know, flavors of, of green apple, sort of browning green apple, a little bit of floral note, little gardenia, this sort of thing. I, I poured him the same wine and said, what do you think? What do you smell here? And he said, yeah, that smells like taro root. So he was associating it with something from his culture that I was far less familiar with. And that's that's another interesting sort of sensory literacy idea is, you know, how we each have our own personal no right or wrong answers, but we have our own personal filters that we take things through. When um, when you look at the worlds of uh, of tasting, you know, I, I know you do a lot of wine tasting. I do a lot of spirits tasting as part of my job. And when sure. I'm communicating with a colleague from another country or from another culture, and we're bringing in the, these different references, you know, uh, uh, an English person might reference some kind of candy they had when they were young. And it's a candy I've never tasted. That's right. But you have to, but I'm coming at it from a different angle. I might describe it as like a cookie that I'd had at one point, which is, you know, very local to where I grew up. But these kinds of common languages and these kinds of common experiences to describe the same thing uh, is really fascinating as, as we get into, you know, talking about and experiencing the, these different kinds of things. So as you work in this area of sensory literacy and considering how that applies to the culinary world, what kinds of things do you think we should all consider when we're approaching our evaluation and understanding uh, and enjoyment of the glass of wine in front of us or the cup of coffee in our hand? You know, it's hard to say what um, what everybody should be focusing on. It, it's really it's really kind of a personal thing. But I think that, um, you know, we're all doing well when we can, you know, when we practice this and we try to describe things. And, and your description might be different than my description, but it's still a good description and you're still practicing that and, and understanding. And the more that we practice and describe flavors that we're perceiving, the more we're, the more insight we're gaining. So what I would say is it doesn't really matter the language that we use as, as long as we're working to think about the flavors that we're getting. And one of the, one of the sort of benefits that I find with, with doing blindfolded work with people is that, you know, we're not, we don't, we notice things a little bit more because eyesight is a distraction. So, you know, I might pour someone a glass of wine that they've had many times before, but when we're sitting smelling and tasting together and really only focusing on the wine in the glass and what we're all saying about it, they experience it far differently and far more intimately than they would if they were, you know, carrying that glass of wine around and sipping it while chit-chatting with people at a party or looking at art or, or even cooking dinner. You know, when we, it's amazing what we can do when we just allow our minds to focus before we started recording, you had mentioned that in addition to being a scientist, you're also a serial entrepreneur. Obviously, through SensePoint, can you tell us a little bit about the work that you're doing and, and kind of what we can see from you and, and expect to see from you? One of, the, one of the more exciting things that's just getting off the ground right now is I decided that, uh, that I have a passion for elevating flavor in people's lives. 
And I want to give people tricks and tools to lift up flavor, you know, to higher places than they ever imagined in their cooking that they do at home. So I'm starting a, uh, a, you know, working on on building out a rubs and a rub and spice company, and I also um, built with a, a, along with uh, several amazing partners a line of vodka and gin, and that line is called Blind Truth Spirits. And what I'll say about that is it's not on the shelf yet. You won't be able to find it on the shelf yet, but uh, it's a very exciting opportunity that. Uh, that we're really that we're really looking forward to, um, and we should expect to hopefully see that out within the next year or so. And uh, I was really excited about that those vodka and gin products because I was able to totally utilize my chemistry knowledge to build them and actually to create the perfect water with the with the right minerals in it using my chemistry background again um, to really create a. a a perfect, you know, wonderful, smooth mouthfeel in, uh, in vodka and gin. So I'm excited to share those, those products with the world, really excited to share those products with the world when the time is right. And you talked a lot about the design that goes into products and, and the design that goes into some of this other work that you're doing, but also there's the design that we need to take into consideration of the production side of, of actual facilities. And recently for the American Craft Spirits Association, you moderated a presentation with your colleague, Jody Tucker, and with our mutual friend, Maggie Campbell from Privateer Rum. Uh, and in that talk, you explored how being more aware of these kinds of details can actually help create a more inclusive and accessible environment in a distillery. Now, that was a 45-minute talk. I won't ask you to repeat it here, but could you encapsulate the point a bit? Uh, because as someone like me who, who frequently visits distilleries, at least pre-COVID, I find this idea kind of fascinating about, you know, looking at the distillery in this different kind of way. Yeah. So thank you, Paul, for that question. It's a it's a great question. And uh, that, that talk was really all about using awareness to foster full inclusivity and uh, diversity and accessibility in, in your distillery. And um, really what we talked about there in, uh, in, in that in that presentation was uh, twofold. It was about sort of internal, building an internal team that is as diverse and inclusive as possible, and also creating a physical experience that is as accessible as possible to the largest number of, of people, the largest number of, of types of people that we, uh, that we might see coming in and out of our distillery. And uh, really, the, the first thing is comes down to building a brand that is that, that cares about accessibility and inclusivity. And one of the most important things there is that a brand is a promise. And I think that the most the best customer service happens when everybody and this is sort of more of the internal side, when everybody is treated equally, right? If we can create a customer experience where it doesn't matter if you're dressed to the nine or you drive in on in a, in a beat up truck, beat up pickup truck, and you've got tattered jeans with cowboy boots on. I don't care how you look every or, or act. And I don't care what color you are or what kind of abilities or disabilities you have. Everybody should be treated equally. And this is the, the culture that I try to foster in the branding work that we do every day at, at SensePoint and at Tucker Branding and, and with my personal stuff too. It's like, the, mo the bottom line is that everybody is equal and everybody is awesome in some of the work I do. And that's really the, the desire that I'm trying to create as I, as I build brands. And along with that comes inclusivity, right? If you treat everybody the same, you're inherently being fully inclusive of, um, 
of everybody in your in, in, in your you know surroundings and really bringing everybody to the forefront to the table and and making them feel included and and equal and you know when talking about building a diverse team so many people think oh i need to hire a diversity officer or one person to you know to to drive diversity within a company and yeah i think that's good and that shows that you're that you're doing a lot of forward thinking but at the same time we need to really create in our in our minds in everything that we do a sense of who we hire you know if you if you just hire people who believe in diversity and share values you there inherently are creating a more diverse and um, an inclusive team you know that's that's really what it's all about you know this whole idea of building diversity and building a diverse culture is it's funny to say this really quite simple you know and i believe that it all comes down to awareness if you're aware of of those around you and you you just you ask them to teach you what works for them. That's when you're creating true inclusivity and true diversity. You know, it is never a problem. Like the thing that I think is, is, is hardest and probably the thing that we should try to avoid the most is this idea of assuming that we that we know, you know, if you don't really know what we know. If someone in your distillery, someone comes into your distillery and has a visual impairment like myself, if you don't, if you haven't dealt with people with visual impairments before, just ask, just say, Hey, I'll do whatever makes sense for you. You just need to let me know, you know, and then we can have a conversation about it and we can both learn from each other there. So it really is awesome when you can just ask what works and, and make the most sense of, of, of what you're, what you're doing that way, you know? So for instance, if, um, if someone asks me, hey, just, just let me know what works for you, I, what I might say is, yeah, if you, when we're on our tour, if you can just describe as much as possible using your words some of this equipment that maybe we we can't touch because it's too hot or whatever, and anything that I can touch, you know, maybe you can let me touch this and experience it just like anyone else would be able to look at it. And, you know, by the way, if you're afraid I'm going to run into something, maybe tell me before I before I run into it rather than grabbing me and holding me back from it. You know, I had one experience where I was walking through a client's facility, you know, I was walking and, you know, got about five feet away from something that they were worried about. I think it was a hose that I was about, they were worried I was going to trip on and they grabbed me like a wild animal. And it's like, you know, maybe don't do that. Maybe you can just use your words and say, Hey, I'm a little bit concerned. And or, Hey, maybe, you know, you're, you're approaching a hose there or something like that. You know, that tends to work a little bit better than, um, <laughs> than grabbing someone when they're when they're walking or moving around and and really it comes down to just if you don't know as i said it before if you don't know just ask if someone in a wheelchair is is on your tour and you know looks like maybe it's going to be a, a, a difficult thing for them to to navigate an area just ask them how you can help them navigate it you know and and really just just talk to people we don't know what we don't know and there's so much that we can learn from all of our clientele. I think that's really the most important thing here. We've talked about a number of the things that you've been working on both with SensePoint and in your other work. Uh, are there other highlights that you really want to make sure that we know about? Yeah, you know, just some other interesting stuff that, that we've done um, back when we talked about sensory literacy. I actually gave a, a TEDx talk. I was honored to give a TEDx talk back in 2017 all about uh, all about sensory literacy and how our how we can be a little more aware of our senses as as we go through life. And uh, you know, the other thing that I was I, I just like to tell you about is sort of another interesting case study 
it's uh, much more my work um, personally that happened earlier this year. Yeah, I'm an adjunct faculty member at the uh, at the Culinary Institute of America here in California, and um, they came to me sort of towards the end of last year and said, "Hey, listen, we're going to be first of all every year they do a." a wonderful summit for beverage professionals, which used to be called their sommelier summit, but it really has expanded and become something, uh, just a fascinating program, I think, for uh, for anyone in food and beverage and, and particularly adult beverages. But uh, but it's a really a wonderful conference they put together. And they said to me, you know, we're thinking about, we want the end of the first day to be a silent disco party where we play various music and headphones and people rank the wines that they're tasting based on, and foods that they're tasting, kind of a wine and food walk around pairing event based on the music that they hear. And we wanna end the day and the formal part of the program with a plenary lecture that really talks about wine and music. And I said, oh, that's, you know, do you think you can put something together for us? So that's really interesting. I think we can, we can build something in here. Let's see what we can do. And I decided to take a shot in the dark. I, one of my, I, I love the music of Dave Matthews and Dave Matthews is a wine brand. He's a, you know, really strong wine connoisseur and, and, and loves the industry. His wine brand, by the way, is Dreaming Tree. And uh, I, I reached out to the winemaker at Dreaming Tree and, and thinking, I don't know if I'll get a response. Well, lo and behold, I got a response less than an hour later with him saying, Hey, let's get on a call. This is really exciting to me. I'm, I, I'd love to chat with you about it. So he and I basically put together an experience along with a good friend of mine named Ali Bazari, uh, who's uh, got, a, got a food, uh, basically a molecular gastronomy uh, R&D company. Good friend of mine from UC Davis. So Sean, the winemaker for Dreaming Tree, Ali and I put together an experience where I basically paired five wines, two of which were the same, with um, so four unique wines with uh, songs, five songs from the Dave Matthews songbook. And we blindfolded people for the first four songs, took the blindfold off for the last song uh, so they could see it. It was actually a video of a, of, a concert, of a performance in concert. But what was amazing is that people's perception of the wine was totally changed by the music that we played. And in one particular instance, we played a different song with another pour of the same wine using the, the Dreaming Tree Rosé. And depending on the song, people described the wine completely differently when we played the first song versus when we played the second song. And it was just a, a really amazing experience to see this unique description of the of the wine based on the music that, that people heard. Um, so that was that was really enlightening and, and inspiring for my career. I really enjoyed that opportunity immensely uh, to get to to get to do that experience. And I really have a desire to do a lot more with multi-sensory stimuli and, and beverage and, and really sort of dig down into this principle of wine and music. I think there's a lot there. Hobie Wedler, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. I really appreciate this. Well, thank you so much. And, uh, you know, my, my, my goal in life, I might have done a few things and I've have these little companies that I'm working on, but my fundamental goal is just to make the world a more positive more inclusive place for all of us. And if we can make it a little more accessible to each and every one of us, I feel like that is that is truly my passion. And that's what I love to do. And I think that's what a lot of us love to do in our in our everyday work as we as we go through life. I, I appreciate Imbibe for doing this series very much. I'm honored. And uh, let's all work together to uh, build and make this world better in our own way. Let's just keep making each other happy.
And that's it for this episode. Be sure to subscribe to Radio Imbibe on your favorite podcast app to keep up with more profiles and conversations in the weeks to come. We've got more of this year's Imbibe 75 on our website, imbibemagazine.com. And be sure to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or Pinterest to see what we're up to on the day-to-day. And if you're not already a subscriber to the magazine, then let's change that today. Head to the link in this episode's notes, and we'll be happy to help you out. I'm Paul Clark, and this is Radio Imbibe. I'll catch you next time. Take care.